Today I'll be reading from Daniel chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will, we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show me the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning, Arcadia. Thank you, Jeff, for reading, uh, getting us started on Daniel this morning. Would you pray with me as we get started? Gracious and holy God, we thank you for who you are. We pray that uh, because you are the one with all wisdom and true wisdom that you would give it to us today. Uh, we recognize your sovereignty, and we thank you for all that you've done for us and all that you will do for us. And God, I just pray that you would... Um, open up our understanding to your word today, that we would apply it to our lives, that we would understand the gospel, the good news that we have in your son Jesus, and that through Daniel we can see both the gospel and teaching that will help us in our lives, uh, in, in all that we do that will guide us. God, the only way we can do that is by your power, your will, your mind in us, as Paul says, and so we just ask that you would give us that, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, it's kind of interesting. I've lived in, in Phoenix for a long, long time. Uh, probably uh, 45 of my 53 years. And I've noticed that every time the 4th of July falls on a Wednesday, we have a nine-day weekend in Phoenix. It's just kind of interesting, you know. I don't know if you've noticed that. Uh, the staff has been getting practically no emails, and we anticipate that we won't for a while, and at least the next seven more days, and uh, a lot of people out of town. Also, a number of you commented on the fact that I have a long sleeve shirt on this morning, and I will tell you that as soon as it gets really hot, I'll switch over to short sleeves, so don't worry. I'll be good. Um, listen, last week we started the Daniel section of our series in Faithful, and, and we introduced it by kind of setting the context. It's the Babylonian exile. And one of the things that happened uh, with the, the Jews in, in Jerusalem in 605 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar first came in, he came in subsequently two more times, but he carried back 70,000 of the Jews from Jerusalem uh, to Babylon and had them kind of set up life there that was one of his conquering strategies for the peoples that he conquered. And among, them, uh, among the exiles were these four boys, um, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and, and so... Uh, the story gets started there, and, and Daniel sort of has an interesting discussion with the chief eunuch about his diet, and, and uh, they have a little contest about the food, which uh, we would say, from a worldly perspective, Daniel wins, but in fact, it was God who won that little contest on behalf of uh, Daniel. 
And so these four boys are taken into the service of the king, and they're 13, 14 years old. That's it at that time. Uh, by Hebrew standards, though, they were probably considered men, just very, very young men. Maybe they weren't even shaving yet, but they were considered of age uh, to be able to do some of these things. And so uh, Nebuchadnezzar takes him into his little school that not Nebuchadnezzar would necessarily run or teach at, but, but he wanted these four boys developed as part of the people that are going to serve in his, in his court. And he only took the best and the brightest uh, into his school for three years. And so we move into chapter 2 today, and in fact, uh, if we look carefully at the dating of chapter 2 based on what Scripture says and, and uh, what history tells us, uh, we're really only in the second or third year of, of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, which means that in chapter 2, Daniel and his uh, three friends are still 14 years old, 15 years old tops, and so we need to keep that in mind. And one of the things that we're going to look at today, well, actually two things we're going to look at today that are, that are prominent themes in today's text are dreams and prayers. And if you were around for the Joseph part of the Faithful series, this would sound familiar to you, dreams and prayers. It kind of sounds like some of the stuff that Joseph went through, and certainly it's going to be very similar to that. So um, if you want to turn to Daniel chapter 2, if you're using the Pew Bibles, those paperbacks that are under the seats, uh, it would be page 478. Otherwise, uh, in your app or in your own Bible, uh, go ahead and turn to Daniel chapter 2, and we're going to jump right in. We're going to reread what uh, Jeff read for us, but I want to spend some time unpacking especially those first six uh, verses. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had, now Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon, so some people would say he's the bad guy. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. So again, you have to remember, Joseph had this happen with uh, the, the cupbearer and the chief baker, and he also had it happen with Pharaoh. So sounds kind of uh, familiar. Uh, then the king commanded the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. Again, similar to uh, Joseph when Pharaoh summoned his wise men to come and help him with his dreams. And so they came and stood, they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans, or all the wise men who were there, said to the king in Aramaic. Now, you may wonder, why does it say in Aramaic there? Uh, the reason in this text is because uh, almost all of the Old Testament is actually written in ancient Hebrew, uh, but this section uh, from uh, verse 4 of chapter 2 in Daniel through the end of chapter 7 in Daniel is actually written in Aramaic. And the reason for that is that the Jews at this time were just beginning to start to use Aramaic as another language that they would use, and that, and that in fact, by the time Jesus was alive and, and hanging around, uh, Aramaic was the primary language that the Jews would use, not necessarily Hebrew anymore. They could read the ancient Hebrew, but they spoke um, more in Aramaic than in Hebrew, so that's why we had that. So, um, the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Just, just so you know, that is the ancient way of sucking up to the king. You always started your conversation with him by saying, Oh, please live forever. Now, is Nebuchadnezzar going to live forever? Not a trick question. But in Nebuchadnezzar's mind, he's hoping he can live forever because he kind of thinks he's like got God status, okay? So they say to him, O king, live forever. And that's kind of 
Also, it's, it's hoping to put them in a good mood so that they can kind of set up what they want to say because what they're going to say is, is, is not going to be something that Nebuchadnezzar necessarily wants to hear. So they say, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show you the interpretation. And the king answered and said to them, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, oh, you have to tell me what the dream is, not just the interpretation. This is a huge switch in standard operating procedure, and the story actually turns on this one little change that Nebuchadnezzar gives them. He says, I want you to tell me the dream and its interpretation. If you can't do that, you should be torn limb from limb in your houses, shall be laid in ruins, but if you show the dream if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and the interpretation. Now, Nebuchadnezzar has an interesting management technique. He, he leads and manages people out of fear, and that is it. He doesn't mix anything else in. And so he tells them, if you can do this for me, uh, you're, you're going you're gonna to get a bonus, and you're going to get a new car, and you're going to get a weekend at a resort in Scottsdale. But if you don't, I'm not only going to kill you, but I'm going to kill your families, and I'm going to destroy your houses. How many of you, don't raise your hands, how many of you had a boss like that, okay? This is, th he's, he, this is his way of, of leading. A and I would suggest to you that, generally speaking, this is not a sustainable way to lead people. Uh, they're, they're, I, I like to relate things to movies. I'm sorry that bugs some of you. Others of you really like it because now you'll listen to the sermon because you've seen all the movies. But there's a great old movie, uh, old, old. It's not that old, but it's a, it's a Robert De Niro movie. I believe he wrote it and directed it as well and also starred in it. It's called A Bronx Tale where his 10-year-old son uh, becomes enamored with the, um, the local neighborhood mob boss. And Robert De Niro is a is a regular citizen, stand-up guy, drives a bus and not involved in crime, but his son, Colosio, ends up getting involved with the mob boss at the age of 10. And so Robert De Niro sees this happening and he grabs his son and he pulls him away and as they're walking away he says, he says, listen, you have to stay away from Sonny, the mob boss. You have to stay away from Sonny. A and his son says, why, Dad? Everybody loves Sonny. And Robert De, Niro, De Niro's character says, no, 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 son, you don't understand. They don't love Sonny. They don't respect Sonny. They fear Sonny. Love and respect are much more difficult to come by than fear. Now, again, what's happening here is that as we talked about in Joseph, the kings felt that all of their dreams were portents or indications of what was going to happen to them in the future. And so it was, it was really important that they had these dreams interpreted. They felt like the gods, plural, the gods, because they were polytheists, they believed in many gods, were trying to communicate to them through the dreams. And so they had to understand what the dreams were, and they had these wise men that they were there to interpret the dreams for them. But there's this twist. He says, you need to tell me the dream, not just interpret it. So why the twist? Well, a couple of possible reasons. Number one, and we'll see in the text later uh, in just a minute that this was actually the reason. But number one is that the king was beginning to think that his wise men weren't legitimate, that they were making stuff up just to keep him happy. And so he said, listen, if you can, if you can tell me what the dream is without me telling you what it is, then I'll believe your interpretation is legitimate. But as it stands now, I think you're scamming me. The second reason, though, possible reason is this, and I've experienced this, I'm assuming some of you have too. You have a really bad dream, a troubling dream, a dream that brings you anxiety and stress, 
and you wake up and you remember the dream for a split second, but then five seconds, ten seconds later, you really can't remember the details of the dream, but you know that you are under duress because of the dream. You know it was a bad dream. So now you're sitting there, you're going, I know I had a really troubling dream, but I can't remember what it is. It's possible that that's what's going on there as well. We'll see later, though, that Nebuchadnezzar just doesn't trust his guys. He's, he's a, Nebuchadnezzar is, is one of the most powerful warrior kings to ever rule in the world. History tells us that, including Scripture, but he was also one of the most insecure kings to ever rule. Now, as our friend Chad D. Miguel says, he's a screenwriter, he says this story is set up perfectly. Uh, we have what's called status quo. Nebuchadnezzar's fine, he's the king and he's ruling and everything is normal. And then we have what's called the inciting incident. The inciting incident is what brings conflict and, and, de and destabilizes the situation. And the dream is the inciting incident in this story. And so now we're going to have conflict and trouble. And as you probably guessed by now, eventually Daniel is going to be brought in and, and be involved in this. In just a minute he will be. So picking it up in verse 7. And so they answered Nebuchadnezzar a second time, and they said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. And the king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time, because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. There you have it. Nebuchadnezzar just assumes that these guys are scamming him, and he feels like this is the only way he can feel confident about the interpretation of the dream. And so the wise men answered the king and, and said to him, There's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has ever asked such a thing from any, uh, any of the wise men. The thing the king asks is too difficult, and no one can show it to the king except for the gods whose dwelling is not with the flesh. They do not dwell among us here. Now, a couple of things going on that we should understand, or at least appreciate. Uh, the wise men are very upset with Nebuchadnezzar for changing the standard operating procedure, and they're pleading their case. They're saying, nobody's ever asked anybody to do this. You, we've been doing it this way for hundreds of years, king. You can't decide to change the rules on us now. That's not fair. And Nebuchadnezzar's going, I determine what's fair. I don't really care, okay? Um, but they're also, they also said something that is absolutely true. Human beings can't do this. They also said something that isn't quite true. They said only the gods can do us. Well, there is one God, the only true God who can do this, as we will see uh, in this story. And their plea, their argument only inflames Nebuchadnezzar. Watch what happens, verses uh, 12, starting at verse 12. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious. So not just angry or furious, but he was angry and very furious furious, and commanded that the, all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. That's it. All the wise men. Understand this. It's not just the wise men who are standing there. It's all of them, even those who are on their day off, even those who were in training, Daniel and the boys, okay? All the wise men. So the guys who are standing there, they're responsible now for the deaths of every other wise man who is in the nation. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. So they're going over to Daniel and the boys, and they're saying, Hi, guys, we're here to kill you, okay? Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, 
the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. So Daniel says to Arioch, why is the old man so hacked off? What's he so upset about, and why is he with such great haste trying to do this? And, and I want to point out, implied in the text is the fact that there is probably a relationship between Daniel and Arioch. It's interesting to me, it just seems throughout this story of Daniel, all six of these chapters, that Daniel has a knack for developing highly respectful relationships with people who actually have power and authority over him. Um, in, in the prison systems, I'm, I'm fascinated, uh, as I work with prisoners, with the number of prisoners who determine that it's probably uh, wise standard operating procedure to treat the correction officers in the prisons with respect and kindness and courtesy even if the correction officers do not deserve to be treated with respect, kindness, and courtesy. Sometimes that happens. The correction officers are just very difficult and very harsh, and they don't deserve that. Yet, the prisoners who treat them with kindness, respect, and courtesy, they're the ones that seem to get along a lot better in prison life, which is a very difficult life, in case you don't know. But I have found that there is a constant um, uh, continuation and causation of the fact that if you treat them with respect, they're eventually going to learn how to treat you with kindness and respect, even the harshest of the, of the COs. I've also seen prisoners who just never seem to get this straight in their head. No matter what, they're going to treat the COs disrespectfully, and they're going to rebel against them, and they're going to behave defiantly. And it's interesting because they are always in trouble with the COs, and always the COs are always on the lookout for those guys making trouble. So this is just pra simple pragmatics here. Daniel is a slave. He is a captive. Everybody around him has more power than he does, and yet he seems to get along well because the Spirit of God is living in him, teaching him how to speak with discernment and respect and kindness to his Captors. So it's a, it's, a pretty good, um, it's a pretty good lesson for us. And so Daniel says, listen, before you whack us out, I want to see the king. And he goes in and he makes an appointment with the king. This is a very bold thing for a 14-year-old boy to do to an insecure, tyrannical king. To go in and say, hey, can you hold up on this process of killing? Now, we, we don't know. We don't know from the text. I'm assuming there's probably already some of the wise men who have been killed. Okay, because this, this order was supposed to be executed very quickly. And he goes in and he says, could you hold off? Give me a chance to try and uh, figure out what the dream is and the interpretation. Again, very bold for a four. It would be very bold for a 44-year-old to go in to Nebuchadnezzar and do this. And yet he does it. Again, we have shades of Joseph here. Now watch, verses 17 and 18. These are really big and important verses. We'll spend some time on this. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions, companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men from Babylon. This is huge. I think we can learn a lot here. This is really important. When crisis hits you, and, and if you're alive, crisis is eventually going to hit you in life. 
Whatever that crisis is, whether it's a health crisis or a work crisis or a relational crisis or a financial crisis, when crisis hits you, what do you turn to? Do you turn to your favorite self-medication, whatever that is? Do you turn to the social media, whatever that is for you, and, 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 start, and start going crazy? I was at the preaching collective this week with all the other pastors, most of whom were actually younger than me, and all of them leaned into this idea that when crisis hits, today's favorite uh, um, way to self-medicate is to just go online and start broadcasting about it. When crisis hits, what do you do? Here's what Daniel does when crisis hits, and there are two things that really you and I should be better at. The first thing he does is he has a small trusted community, and he seeks them. He has a redemption community. He has a life group, and he goes to them. And I know right now, some of you are just immediately tuning me out. You're going, oh no, he's going to hit that life group thing again. I'm not in a life group. I know I should be in a life group, but I'm not in a life group. And by life group, I mean a redemption community. I know I should be in there. Now he's going to tell me why. That's exactly right. So listen up. Here you go. This is really, really important. I got to ask you, who are you doing life with if you're not in a redemption community? Who are you doing life with? I think these things are absolutely critical. Everywhere I've been, they've been a critical part of my life. And, and I will tell you, not only is it spiritually true, is it, and not only is it biblically true, but I'm, gonna look, I'm just going to approach it from, a, from a, a position of pragmatics right now. It is pragmatically true that you should be in a redemption community. Okay, and, and, and as you hear me in this, I want you to hear my heart. I don't want you to hear me trying to get rid of responsibility or accountability. I am your pastor, and I am part of a staff here at Redemption Arcadia, and our job is to shepherd you and be your pastors and be available to you. I understand that. I wouldn't be here if I didn't understand that, and if I didn't want to do that, I wouldn't be here. But think about the numbers. How many of us are on staff here? There's a couple of us full-time. There's a few of us, maybe three of us, four of us that are part-time. And our community, Redemption Arcadia, consists of about 600 adults. So when crisis hits and you don't have a redemption community and you are counting on only the staff to help you in your crisis, you might be surprised to learn that we are not immediately available every single time. Why? Because there's hundreds of other people doing exactly the same thing that you're doing. And there's only a few of us. But if you're, so think about it now, so there's like, let's say there's four of us, totally, staff, to 600 people. But if you're in a redemption community, a community of, say, 15 people, there's one of you and 15 people who are supposed to be helping you and shepherding you and leading you and doing life with you. Do you see how the, do you see the difference in the ratios? Okay, here's how one author puts it. You can either, when life crisis hits, you can either go to the emergency room and be triaged and wait a long time, or you can have direct access to a good doctor immediately. That's what life groups, that's what redemption communities will do for you. And we're serious about this, and I have seen it work. You have no idea how gratifying it is for me to show up at a crisis event and find out that the person's uh, 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 friends and people they're doing life with are already there. The people from the redemption community are already there, already ministering to them. It is a wonderful testament to the effectiveness of the church when I show up and my job is to get coffee for people. 
and not be the primary minister. That is a good thing, and that is how the church is supposed to operate. Okay? So that's the first thing they do. And by the way, uh, we're going to have some uh, redemption community leaders up here after the service, as well as people that you can pray with if you're looking for an RC. And this is finally the time that you've been pushed into the idea of maybe you need to join one. Please come up and see Eugene Scott. Uh, he's sitting right over here, and he's going to have a couple of other people with him uh, to help you try to navigate that. Here's the second thing they do. The first thing that Daniel does is he goes to his community, and they were immediately available. And the second thing they do is they go immediately to God in prayer. I am still fascinated around the church how often I hear this phrase. Well, we've done everything we can do. We might as well pray. Why is prayer so often the last thing that we do as followers of Christ instead of the first thing? You see, in Daniel's case, he knew that he had access to a realm that none of Nebuchadnezzar's wise men had access to. That's why he said, hold the phone, Neb. I might be able to figure this out for you. And, and here's the last thing I want to point out about Daniel. Unlike Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel's um, management and leadership style come from faith, not fear. He leads and manages people out of faith, whereas Nebuchadnezzar leads and manages people out of fear. And again, I want to just mention to you, these are 14-year-old boys. These are boys behaving like men, not men behaving like boys, which seems to be kind of a thing that is popular in our culture today. Uh, one author likes to say we have a lot of boys in our culture who shave today. In our culture, we, we, we want kids to grow up way too fast, it seems, in some areas. I don't know if you've noticed, but we want our children to grow up in our, just generally in our culture. We want them to grow up in the areas of sex and coarse language and, and having a voice before they earn their voice. But then we don't want them to grow up very quickly in other areas, which are, I think are really important areas where we should be challenging our kids to grow up a little bit sooner. For instance, wisdom and discernment. It's okay to challenge a six-year-old on wisdom and discernment and teach them and lead them in those areas. Uh, academics. I will tell you, I, I, and I know, some of you are going, well, that's a community college, Paradise Valley Community College. That's why you get this. I get papers from these college students. It's amazing how many of them, they, don't, they have no clue how to construct a sentence. And in fact, and there's somebody in the audience right now laughing because he's also an adjunct instructor, but not at a community college. He's at Grand Canyon University, and he finds the same thing. He and I like to talk about how we'll get pepper, papers that are written in text ease. We get academic papers from 20-year-olds who are writing us like they're texting us on the phone, complete with emoticons. It's really something. I'm not kidding. I, I could show you some of these if the FERPA laws would allow me to, okay? But we don't, we don't ask our kids to grow up in academics the way we should. Uh, consequences to bad decisions. I, it's amazing how many parents are still bailing out their 35-year-old for bad decisions. Uh, Matt Chandler says this, we now live in a culture where adolescence, especially for males, has been extended to age 30. The pimples are gone, but the behavior is still there. We also struggle in this area, getting our kids to grow up. The fact that life is competitive and there are going to be winners and losers. Commencement speaker David McCullough Jr. did a great service to the 2012 graduates of Wellesley High School this year when he said this, in order to be prepared for life, you need to know that you are not special. If everyone gets a trophy, then trophies are meaningless. 
I'm not saying that hard work shouldn't be recognized or appreciated. That's not it at all. But we need to balance it with the reality that life is competition and there's going to be winners and losers. I'm going to embarrass my oldest daughter right now. I'm sorry she made it to church this morning. I was hoping she'd oversleep. But a couple years ago, she's a senior in high school. They're in the state volleyball tournament. And they're in the semifinals, and they're playing against the defending state champions, Thatcher. And, and these two schools have a long history of just not really getting along very well. So anyway, um, they, they played, and this match goes the full five games. It was tight the whole way. It was an amazing match. And in the end, Thatcher, the defending state champions, won. And, and, and I just, I remember, it was, just, it was so hard. It was hard. You know, my heart was broken for Shelby. And, and I, just, I just knew this is going to be really tough when they finally emerge from, from the uh, locker room. And finally, after about a half an hour, here come the girls. And there were a lot of tears, a lot of tears. They really felt they should have won the match. They had their opportunities to win the match. That's so true. Lots and lots of tears. I will tell you, I would rather Shelby went through that experience than be given a trophy that she didn't earn because she developed character by going through that experience that you never develop by constantly being told you're a winner even when you're not. She developed character from that thing. Daniel behaves like a man at the age of 14. We should be better, especially in the church, at calling for boys and, and women to be solid spiritual people at a younger age than, say, 40. Okay? So what happens? Verses 19 through 24. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of, uh, of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, he prays. God gave him the vision. He gave him the information and he prays. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Listen to this prayer. He, Daniel is acknowledging that God has the wisdom that we should want and that God is sovereign. He is all-powerful. He is in control of everything. God reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might. You have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore, Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went to him and he said this, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me before the king and I will show the king the interpretation. I love this. This is, this is deep irony. I love irony as a rhetorical device. It's one of my favorites as a device to tell stories, okay? Here's the irony, okay? Nebuchadnezzar supposedly got a vision in his dream from his gods, but the one true God of Daniel is the one that reveals the dream to him and reveals the interpretation. And then Daniel immediately, he goes into prayer before God reveals him the interpretation. And then he goes into prayer after. And this prayer is fantastic. It's only four verses, but look what he does. He recognizes God's sovereignty. He acknowledges God's wisdom. He confesses Daniel, his inability to do anything apart from God. Notice he says, you gave me this power. You gave me this insight. Apart from you, I can do nothing. And then he thanks him for his love and his provision. It's a wonderful prayer. 
And now having consulted his community and all prayed up, he's ready to go see Nebuchadnezzar for his big meeting. If, if I were Daniel, I'd probably walk in with a little bit of a swagger, you know, maybe, maybe go ahead and ask him if I can refer to him as Neb, okay? We, we kind of see a, maybe a little bit of this in there. Here you go, verse 25. Then Arioch, Arioch brought Daniel in before the king in haste. <laughs> Let's get him in there quick before he starts killing people. And he said thus to him, I have, been, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Bel Belteshazzar, are you able to make known the dream that I have seen and its interpretations? Daniel answered the king and said, interesting to me that Daniel's the only person who, who addresses Nebuchadnezzar without the words, O king, live forever. He just, there's a little, maybe just a little bit of swagger right there. He doesn't say, O king, live forever. Instead, he, he just dives right in. He says, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. All the wise men who are standing there listening to this right now are going, I'm glad he said that, man. That's really cool. We're off the hook now. At least Daniel agrees with us in regard to that. But, verse 28, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and, and the visions in your head as you lay in your bed are these. To you, O king, as you, laid, as you lay in bed, thoughts of what would be after this, and he who reveals mysteries made known to you what, is, what it is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me. Not because of any wisdom that I have. Not because I'm so special. King, you need to understand, I'm not special. And I'm about to tell you that you're not that special either, king. The only reason this is happening is because God is a gracious, loving, providential God who wants to help us out. He says, but in order that the interpretation might be made known to the king and that you might know the thoughts in your mind. He says, uh, I'm, do I'm doing this only because God has allowed us to do it. And so then Daniel tells him the dream and the interpretation. I'll summarize those 15 verses for you. Here's the dream. As Nebuchadnezzar slept, there was a huge formidable, intimidating statue, and this is what he sees. He sees this big statue, and it's kind of a scary statue. The statue has a head of gold, chest of silver, a core and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, and feet of clay. And as Nebuchadnezzar is looking at this big, huge statue, a, a giant stone supernaturally appears in the dream. It's as though the gods brought down a big stone, and this stone comes over to this huge, intimidating statue and just smashes it to smithereens. I mean, just absolutely destroys it, turns it into dust, and then the dust gets blown away. And then the stone becomes a mountain that fills the entire earth. And Nebuchadnezzar says to Daniel, that's the last time I'm going to have green chili enchiladas right before bedtime. And then in verse 36, Daniel says, that was the dream. Now let me tell you the interpretation. But before he gets to the interpretation, Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, by the way, the only reason you're a king and you have such a great kingdom is because God caused it to be so. Here's this 14-year-old boy telling those powerful men in the world, you ain't all that. You, you, you're really cool only because God has caused you to be cool. But again, Daniel has great faith in God. And then he says, all right, here it is. Nebuchadnezzar, you and your kingdom are the gold head. You're the gold head. And after you, an inferior kingdom is going to arise. But that inferior kingdom is going to usurp you. They're going to defeat you. 
They're going to take over. That's going to be the Persians. That's the silver chest. And then another kingdom and another kingdom will come after the Persian kingdom. That's the bronze and the iron. And then a last kingdom will come that will be a combination of strength and brittleness. So a combination of iron and clay. And that, that kingdom will be especially confused and immoral. And then it'll be in those days that the, the Lord of the heavens, the God of gods, the one true God is going to set up his kingdom. That's the great stone that smashes all these other kingdoms and sets up shop in the earth. That is, that is going to be the kingdom of God, and it's going to come and reign in power. In other words, here you go. This is what Daniel's telling Nebuchadnezzar. He's saying, you and your kingdom are really, really something, but it's not the greatest. And it is certainly not eternal or permanent. And if you think it's the greatest that ever was, and it's eternal and permanent, that's only happening in your own feeble little mind because there is a kingdom that is coming that is greater than yours, and it is going to be permanent. In other words, the kingdom of God is real, and it is coming in power. And by the way, Nebuchadnezzar, the dream is certain, and my interpretation is sure and true. The kingdom of God is coming, and it is coming in power. And by the way, 600 years later, the kingdom did come, and it came in power, and it came in the form of Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is here on earth. Let me tell you, it's not perfect yet. That's why we have the church. That's why we have the power of the resurrected Christ and the Holy Spirit living within us, because our job is to help bring the kingdom of God to the earth. Thy kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's, that's the mission of the church to bring up there, down here. And our hope lies in the fact that in the new Jerusalem, we will have the perfect, eternal kingdom of God that has no sin, no tears, no suffering. That is our hope. In other words, we have the hope of the already, it just hasn't totally happened yet. But we know it's coming, and it's coming in power. Last uh, four verses, let's hear how Nebuchadnezzar responds to this. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king, see, Nebuchadnezzar's still confused. He's worshiping and honoring people instead of the one true God. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Now, this sounds like a pretty good testimony from Nebuchadnezzar. And it is as far as it goes. He's making progress about who God is, but he still thinks that Daniel's God is just one of many gods and that there are other gods still running around with power. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel is now promoted at the age of 14, maybe 15 at the outside. He is the boss of all the bosses, okay? Daniel made a request to the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. So he didn't forget his friends. But then Daniel remained in the king's court. It's important for us to understand that Nebuchadnezzar's confession of who God is is pretty good as far as it goes, but if you read closely that text, his motivation for making this confession about God is clearly motivated out of what God did for him, not out of adoration for God. Jesus calls us to adore God for who he is, 
not because of what he might do for us. Nebuchadnezzar's still at that really immature point where he only likes God because of what he's done for him. Now let me ask you this question. Is this a story about Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar? You know what? They're bit players in this story. Bit players. It's really about a story about God and his sovereignty. And a lot of people struggle with the idea of God's sovereignty. Here's some of you. What's God's sovereignty? God is all-knowing. He knows everything. He's all-powerful. He is always present. He has complete wisdom. As my friend Tom likes to say, there is no maverick molecule anywhere in the universe running around outside of the control of God. God is in complete control of everything. He either causes or allows everything in the universe to happen. And people push back against that. There was a, a movie recently. Here's another movie for you. How many of you saw The Adjustment Bureau? Okay. Really great storytelling. Thoroughly enjoyable and entertaining movie. Awful theology, though. Horrible theology. The movie ultimately was a polemic against the idea that God is sovereign. The movie was a polemic against the idea that people are not in control. The movie essentially preached this message. You're in control of your own destiny, destiny no matter what God ha might have to say about it. And that's just wrong. It is. And if you live your life that way, you're going to be awfully disappointed at how frustrating your life can be. By definition, if God is not these things, here you go. By definition, if God is not all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, and filled with wisdom, then he's not God. He can't be God. And if you have all those things, as the Adjustment Bureau would like to make you think you have, then you must be God. Now, that might not be scary to you that you are God, but it's scary to everybody else. Just let me make sure you understand that, okay? Again, uh, Matt Chandler says this, the only possible biblical understanding of God is that he is sovereign. Now, there's a lot of practical application things that we can get out of this story, there's one last thing that I want to lean into in terms of practical application. It would be prayer. I want to go back to the way Daniel prayed. And I want to challenge us to be more like Daniel in our prayer life. Um, I have discovered, myself included, that the way we pray is usually skewed. It's unbalanced. The way we tend to pray, most of us, not all of you, most of us, the way we tend to pray is, is we're asking for, you know, we're asking for sweets and snacks and desserts, but we rarely ask for vegetables and the main course. If our prayer lives were like a television character, we would be Newman from Seinfeld, okay? We tend to pray as though God is a cosmic vending machine. We insert our prayers, out comes what we ask. That's the way it's supposed to work. We also pray from our own limited perspective. Meaning, even though our perspective is thoroughly limited on reality, we pray as though we have a monopoly on reality and we ask God to see things our way and to do things our way rather than asking God to give us wisdom and guidance to do things His way. And we assume that we know what's best for us and what's best for everybody else as opposed to God. We just go to him and say, this is what's best for us and best for everybody else. Now you ordain it and do it, God. Uh, Jerry Sitzer is one of my favorite authors, and um, 
he wrote a book in 2004 as a follow-up to uh, another book. Uh, the, the title of the book that he wrote in 2004 is When God Doesn't Answer Your Prayer. And one of the great stories he tells in there is, is, is he says, I, you know, I go to these soccer games and these kids are playing and, and if it's the end of a soccer, towards the end of a soccer game, last 10 minutes in a particularly tight game and it's tied, he says, I look around and I suddenly realize that there are parents on both sidelines that are praying that their kid's team would win and, of course, that their kid would win, score the winning goal. Well, 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 God is a complete loser in that deal because somebody's not going to get their prayer answered, right? Isn't that right? So he's like, I'm glad I'm not God having to deal with those prayers. Here are three things that I think we should be better at praying. Number one, seeking God's wisdom. Daniel does this. He seeks God's wisdom. James chapter 1 in the New Testament tells us, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask God. If any of you lacks wisdom, ask God. Our problem is that we think our wisdom is at least as good as God's, if not better. And so we don't ask. Proverbs 3 um, says, no, that's not true. Proverbs 3 says, trust always in the Lord. Lean not on your understanding. Do not be wise in your eyes. Rather, it is God who will make your paths straight. King Solomon, you know, he, he essentially found the bottle on the beach with the genie inside. God came to him and said, I'll give you whatever you want. You can ask for riches, wealth, whatever you want, I'll give it to you. And what did Solomon ask for? Wisdom and discernment. Second thing we should do is we should ask for our will to align with God's will. I will just admit to you that a majority of my prayers are asking for God's will to align to mine. And I suspect that many of you do the same thing. But in reality, we actually end up doing a lot better if we ask to align our will with God's first. Larry Wright used to say it this way, ask for what you want, but if you're aligned with God properly, he will change your wanter. A couple of psalms that help. Psalm 40, verse 8, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law, your teaching is within my heart. Psalm 143, 10, teach me to do your will. For you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. And then number three, we should, we should be better at thanksgiving. Usually we're so busy asking for what we want and telling God how we think other people should change and what our version of justice is that we forget to thank God for who he is and what he's done for us. Again, if you look closely at Daniel's prayer, he does all these things. He praises God for his wisdom and thanks him for his wisdom. He praises God for his sovereignty and, and for the fact that it's his will that reigns, not Daniel's will that reigns. And his thankfulness is also a humble confession that Daniel could do nothing apart from God. And the last thing I would say about prayer is this. I mean, this is like, this is like the, ace, the, the ace in the hole card right here. Even Jesus prayed. And, and by the way, he didn't pray just once. And he didn't just teach on it once. You read through those Gospels, he prayed a lot. He would go off on his own to pray a lot. And, and then the night before he was crucified, he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's interesting, he did pray for what he wanted, but in the end he said, not my will, but your will be done, right? So he prays to line up his will with the Father's will. In John chapter 17, that magnificent prayer where he prays for us, a whole chapter devoted 
to prayer. I'm not even going to mention the Lord's Prayer, His teaching on prayer, but I will also mention to you that He prayed on the cross. And who did He pray for on the cross? He prayed that those who were murdering Him would be forgiven. I just tell you, if He needed to pray for the power and wisdom and will of the Father, don't you think that you and I need to as well? When you talk about Nebuchadnezzar's life being rooted in fear and Daniel's life being rooted in faith, that's the gospel. That's the gospel right there. Jesus tells us, do not be afraid, 500 times in the New Testament. It's the thing he tells us the most in the New Testament. Do not be afraid. Why? Because we're so strong. We've attended all of these pull-yourself-up-by-your-own-bootstrap seminars because we have it figured out because we're so smart. No. He says, do not be afraid because the power of the resurrected me, Jesus, is with you because of his resurrection. This was so instrumental to who Daniel was that we can say with great confidence, Daniel's king never changes even though his address does. And, I'm, and talking about addresses, I can talk about two different addresses. There's his geographical address. Whether Daniel was in Jerusalem or Babylon, his king was the same, but also his circumstantial address. No matter what circumstance he was in, a relational crisis, a financial crisis, a, a power crisis, a work crisis, a health crisis, no matter what, uh, what, what circumstantial address he has, his king is the same, and so is ours. Jesus. And as a band comes and we're led in a time of response, let's just remember that, who Jesus is. Let me pray. God, thank you for your word and its truth. By your power, we ask to have wisdom and discernment, and we thank you for who you are. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.